Hi, Tim Cask here. Facing a TV gay and don't know what to do? Well, you might if you had listened to Save for Half. Now that you've cast out the evil sorcerer and taken his treasures and searched his colon for gems, it's time for you to kick back and listen to the Save for Half Sideshow. The Save for Half Sideshow, where it's all fun and games until somebody takes a four-sider to the eye. Here we are for the Sideshow. You may now Yahoo. Okay. <laughs> Number seven and a half. With you as the guy who, if he were a old school miniature, would probably be Grenadier. Kind of clunky and chunky, but gets the job done. DM Mike. And with me is the girl who, if she were a mini, would certainly be old school Ralpartha. DM Liz. Hello. Actually, I'm not so sure about Ralpartha, but all right. No? Who would you be then? Uh, Monopoly hmm. pieces? No. Yeah. No. And joining us is the guy who'd be a hero click, the imperfect. Woohoo! Woohoo! There you are. There you go. I only woohoo by your command, my supreme leader. Insert Cylon voice here. Ah, and so, this show, we're going to answer some emails and then start part one of a two part interview of Gaming Magazine's. Done by Tim Kask from back in the day. Yes, we're going to talk about Strategic Review, Dragon Magazine, Adventure Gaming Magazine, and Gygax Magazine. But first... We also have a surprise guest. (laughs) We also have a surprise guest. But first... (laughs) Do we have any emails, Liz? Oddly enough, yes. Oddly enough. Well put. We do have emails. I don't know why people write to us, but they do, (laughs) and we have emails. Because they want to hear you say, yes, we have emails. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really have anything to say. I just want Liz to have to keep saying, yes, we have emails. Yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. But we do have emails. (laughs) Yes. All right. Well. Let's get (laughs) cracking. I read all the emails on the face of the earth. No emails were harmed in the making of this podcast. Our first email for today is from Albert Ramirez. And Albert says, guys, I am so happy you started a new podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Albert. We are happy to be here. (laughs) You too. So far. 
so far, yes. Mm. Uh, so that was short and sweet from Albert. Thank you very oh, much. Thanks, Albert. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> to the point. <laughs> I like that. Let's I... discuss his email and diverge into breakfast cereals for no reason for 20 minutes, <laughs> shall we? No, no. I think his email was very much like Frankenberry, which uh, obviously makes a statement of how crunchy it is and sweet. Bah. <laughs> It's bah. obviously Lucky Charms. Duh. <laughs> Count Chocula. Anyway. anyway. <laughs> charms, I'll blow your ass to pieces. <laughs> Moving right along. Oh. This is why we can't have nice things. This is why Mike was never in the jingle market. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why. Our next email <laughs> is from Greg McKenzie. Erroneous Grog. <laughs> and Greg writes, I DMs. Hi. I just finished a marathon of Save for Half episodes, and I enjoyed them all. We have enough to have a marathon? <laughs> Four to five doctors recommend not having Save for Halves in more than one sitting. In less than one sitting, sorry. Okay, first, some favorite old games I would like to see covered. Ooh, okay. Tunnels and Trolls. Yes. Yeah. Ken St. Andre richly filled my youthful days with hours of solo adventures. Those Rick were pretty Cre cool. They were. <laughs> you missed my vital spots. <laughs> <laughs> Rick Krebs, Gangbusters. Oh, oh, so good. It has to be one of my favorite and adaptable game systems. Well, the TSR one, wasn't it? Or was that... Yeah, that was TSR. I yeah. never actually saw that game until mid-night 90s, actually. I... In the 80s, I had never came across it. I don't think I did either until 90. No, it was probably 88 or 89 when I got it. Oh. But I love that pulp noir stuff, so, yeah. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. For so. it was Paul Cthulhu. But anyway. Um, chivalry and Sorcery. Another In high fantasy. school, my DM and gaming group suddenly switched to CNS from D&D. Really? Proof that you can be old school and crunchy. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, okay, this is a bit of a stretch. Tier Game Makers Space Quest, a D30 game, which it may be hard to find copies. <laughs> okay, the shows. Great. I'm so glad you're making these. Doctor Who. I bought and played the boxed set, and the biggest problem I had with it was the TARDIS allowed the players to go anywhere in space and time. <laughs> that does seem kind of the point. <laughs> it's a hindrance. Yeah, Off yeah. the map, guaranteed. <laughs> Talk and about having to fly by the seat of one's pants. <laughs> true, but of course they rarely go where they want to. Yeah, there is that. That's <laughs> the beauty of it. In the end, we only played a few games before returning to AD&D 1E. Yeah, the, at least the Doctor's TARDIS almost never took him where he intended on going. On the other hand, if you as a GM are always doing that. My GM Fiat says the TARDIS is going here because that's where it needs to be for this game adventure. You kind of start to feel like you're being railroaded to an extent, don't you think? True. I think you can probably... Don't do it every single time. Just do it every now and then to keep the players on their toes. And just enough so that they can't treat the TARDIS as an invulnerable fortress and escape pod to use all the time. Yeah. You know, because that I've seen get locked I, up occasionally. Yeah, I've seen Doctor Who games result in that, where it's basically the commando strike, like Jim was talking about. People just TARDIS in, kill everybody, hop out. Ah, you're in, we're in our TARDIS. You can't touch us. 
Yeah. And that that can be a problem. I don't know. I do like the newer Doctor, how they've made the TARDIS almost organic, where it, it could essentially vomit you out if it has a problem. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mike is still good? is not watching all of the Capaldi episodes, oh, so okay. he's missed a lot of this. No, they, they go back to uh, oh, Matt Smith, when they actually took the soul of the TARDIS and put it in a woman. Yeah. yeah. Neil Gaiman wrote that, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a really pretty fun little yeah, story. It was a but, fun episode. But it kind of implied that the TARDIS is a little more organic than than machine, in a way. So, well, anyway, I, it doesn't I think matter. They've actually mentioned it a lot earlier that it was organic. But anyway, go ahead. But it's Greg, Greg McKenzie's the one writing the letter? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. He's the one who sent the copy of Space Quest. So he sent us a copy. Well, all right then. <laughs> and he sent we us a copy. We have no excuse. Of BX Space that he's been working on. So that's something that uh, we should probably look out in general. I don't know if he's finishing it up still. It looks like it's still being worked on. But I want to wait until it's actually finished before. Oh, he sent us a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Work in progress. Yeah. All right. Well, continue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he says... I'd never heard of Cyborg Commando. It did not penetrate the far corners of where I lived. Sounds interesting, though, if hard to play. Mm. I'm a big Holmes fan, as it was the closest to the original game, but I never liked the bridging aspect to 1E, as I thought that was confusing. Well, I tend to look at everything through Judge's Guild-tinted glasses. <laughs> Word. The subsequent basic rules, therefore, presented a real problem to me in their treatments of the rules as I had known them, and I too noted the inconsistent text of with regard to read magic. My thought is this. One has to go back to men and magic to understand how it was intended to be used. Read magic was the means by which a spell from a scroll was cast, not understood. The spell allowed the magic user to read up to two spells from scrolls thus limiting those scrolls with seven spells on them. Compare to Identify, and you'll see an overlap. I never played it like that, though. I mean, my first thought is, how many... I don't know about you guys, but how many times did you ever run in even Basic and Expert? Did you run into finding a scroll with seven spells on it? Mm. That's true. I never really found scrolls that had a whole bunch of spells on them. Yeah, I think three or four was probably the most I ever came across. I think two was the most I ever came across. Yeah. I want to say the first time I recall being in a game where there were a whole bunch of spells on an individual scroll like that was maybe one of Chase's games. No. And I'm not even sure I'm remembering correctly, but I seem to recall one of our first campaigns with him. We had gotten a scroll from somewhere and it had maybe five different five spells on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I never had any room in my golf bag filled with swords to fit any scrolls, so... Um... <laughs> That's what the pointy hats were for, you know, to pack them up in there. That's why the wizards wear the pointy hats. That does make a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah stick a scroll up in there. Scroll three or four. I always thought they were road workers just, uh, whoa, what was that? Um, They'll be just fine, right, Liz? <laughs> our new cat is terrorizing our old cat. <laughs> And by terrorize, I mean he wants to play with her, but she's like 11 years old and not too keen on it. <laughs> <laughs> old school, new school. It never ends with these guys. I know. <laughs> okay, Let's email. play Pathfinder. Let's play Pathfinder. Let's play Pathfinder. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway. Anyway, <laughs> your discussion of Gamma World was very interesting. I never felt the urge to pick it up back in the day, but from the sounds of things, I missed something. I did run Metamorphosis Alpha, so, yes, intriguing. Jim's like 90% of it, then. <laughs> Jim's editorial was spot on, and there is a guardianship of legacy, which is not much good if all game texts are regarded as final. People's passions are often aroused when their game is discussed, partly because of treasured memories and a feeling of ownership. There's always a new way of looking at something, so we must all move with the times, or write our own games. I refer you to any gazetteer. (laughs) (laughs) Continue. (laughs) I enjoyed the .5 episode about the North Texas RPG Con. I haven't been to one in years. Thanks so much for starting up the podcasts. Demi save. (laughs) (laughs) Greg McKenzie, ye erroneous grog himself. And check out his stuff and others at briark.org. Right. Right. It's okay. Gary sent us. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the cogent email as always. All right. And that's hard to believe. Hmm? No, oh, just he said he hasn't been to a North Texas con in several years. Unless he well, hasn't been to a con in, in several years. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, no, I was just thinking that wow, there has been several years of North yeah. Texas cons. It's going to be number ten next year. My yeah. gosh, where, so now where it won't be several. Go? It'll be a decade. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when it first started, and we were sure to go down there because well, it was convenient, and we wanted to encourage yeah. old school. Of course, 10 years ago, it was just the start of the OSR, so we were still a rebel group fighting for our views. <laughs> fighting the evil empire. The evil <laughs> empire. Of course, Liz had to wear buns then, so it was a long yeah, time well. ago. It was, cinnamon, it was. Yeah, yeah. And then I had to eat the cinnamon buns because... Well, <laughs> but you didn't want them to go bad. <laughs> anyway. So is that because Mike found out that Mike Botlano is his father? And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, I don't even want to go there. No, no. Bad Mike is Good Mike's evil twin. Evil twin. Yep. Makes more sense. Doug is our father. Ah! No! As long as it's not Skeeter. (laughs) Okay. Our next letter is from Raphael Beltrame. Mm. And I may have butchered your last name, Raphael. If so, I'm very sorry. It's from South America. I don't know exactly where. Brazil. Brazil? Okay. (laughs) Anyway, Raphael writes, Hi, guys. I'm glad glad DM Jim (laughs) sent me your new location. (laughs) Too bad the forums are a little, quote, worm, end quote. Not much discussion there. But I'm loving the work, so keep rolling. Can we still make questions here? If so, here it is. Miniatures in your games, yes or no? Some say it's great and helps the game. Others see them as a crutch. But, well, even the brown books say something about miniatures. Yet, I've seen players so concentrated in the board that they forget to think about the characters. They just think with their sheets. Yeah, I guess treating it like a war game, almost. Well, That's a danger. Um, can I go first? Go ahead. <laughs> okay, then you can correct me. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I use I use miniatures when I can. I, I do like using miniatures because it's fun. I've actually gone so far as to have toys at the table and have, like, action figures and stuff. because Toys? Toys that are even <laughs> <of> T&T? <laughs> what, 
what's next? You're going to get, like, bags of Hong Kong, you know, plastic figure monster, goofy monsters <laughs> out there to make as your D&D monsters? How dare you? Actually, I do have tubs of army men and uh, <gasps> monsters and little things like that. that <gasps> they're great filler. Sorry. So, well, that is what they did at the beginning. <laughs> well, it, it's fun to put out there for spatially placing things because sometimes I need that when there's an actual battle going on. Other times, it's kind of fun for guys to waste time making sexual positions with the figures and laughing at each other when I'm hmm. doing a long dialogue about something. So see it works out. some interesting players. I, <laughs> I hope those aren't your kids. No. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> if you've got the minis, and if it helps, by all means. My, my only peeve is when you get games that, that are supposed to be RPGs but require minis. And that's like, no, 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 no. This, you're, you're trying to Warhammer us. And I see what you're doing here. Well, good- I think minis are cool, especially for, say, newer people who are not that much into role-playing yet. And they can have a mini that gives them a focus. So this is my character. This is what he or she looks like. And it gives them something to imagine. So I think in that regard, minis are fun to have to give you that focus of your character. Agreed that if you've got a big melee scene, it can be very useful to have minis to just remember, okay, there are three orcs on the fighter over here. There's two of them over on the cleric. Because it does get hard to remember sometimes if you're just keeping it all in your head. It's like, okay, how many orcs are left now? Because we've killed, I think we've killed five. How many are left? Who are they on again? Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I, I like that too. That's a good point. The focus on the figure. Stranger Things, they put their character out and they pointed out. Even Mazes and Monsters did the same thing with those little statue figures they had. Mm-hmm. I yeah. still love yeah. those statue figures. They were cool. They were never going to play with them, but how cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my character. It's like, it's action figure size. It's like, yes. it's cool, actually. <laughs> well, I know the Warhammer stuff's been getting slowly bigger over time, but wow. Mm -hmm. The the other time that it's really fun to put a mini out there is if you have something that's either really terrifying and you want to make a statement by just suddenly putting it out on the table. Mm -hmm. Again, kind of like they did in Stranger Things. You know, Demogorgon. Demogorgon. Or maybe it's not scary, but it's just a super, super cool mini. And you just want to put it out there because, like, God, I just got this, and I want everyone to see it. <laughs> like Chase, uh, he, when he used that Sculpey to sculpt a, a sandworm, sandworm wow. 28 mil scale. <laughs> he had a, we got attacked by one that's supposedly in this little para dimension that we had, and I'm just sitting there going, you just did this because you wanted to use this mini, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as long as we're clear on that. Yeah, and Mike's got a cool mini of, I think it's an ogre riding a rhinoceros Mm. as his mount and he's got what is very obviously a barn door with the little ring still on it (laughs) as his shield a literal barn door it's like that is such an awesome mini and i would love to just plunk that out there out of nowhere and have everyone around the table go holy crap (laughs) it's an ogre cavalier (laughs) 
very long-winded <laughs> answer, Raphael, but I think we're all pretty much on the side of if you've got them and it works with your group, go ahead. And anyway, Raphael finishes up with, have a great week and sorry for my English skills. They need to be polished. I, we think you did pretty well. <laughs> I think that can be said to all of our English skills. So. Says you. Says you. <laughs> what? <laughs> And My English is fine is pretty good. It's all good and stuff. <laughs> and if someone wanted to write us, Corbett, where would they write us at? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's safeforhalfpodcast at gmail.com, right? Woohoo! Okay. Yay! Yeah. Got it. Mike is bad about giving pop quizzes like that. <laughs> uh, I always forget. <laughs> Had another, had another student drop today, by the way. <laughs> I wonder why. You probably asked them what the Save for Half podcast email account was. Again, On she the was spot. totally wrong. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, any other announcements, or shall we head into our commercial break and then go to our interview with our super secret co-host? I do have an announcement that I would like to make. Really? Show. I, I do, yes. <laughs> I just want to point out to everyone, we've received some emails asking about the top secret New World Order contest, and we want to let everybody know that we are still waiting to hear from Jason Elliott at TSR for confirmation of the winners. Once we get that, we will be publicly announcing and asking those individuals privately for their mailing addresses so that they can get their prizes. But I just want to make sure everyone is aware. We haven't forgotten. We're just waiting to get the official confirmation and once we get that we are going forward so please hang in there waiting mm -hmm. for a, a memo from the tsr administrator technically i do have an announcement too because actually i had forgotten so good reminder there liz <laughs> he, he announces that he had forgotten <laughs> it's a special announcement i don't remember <laughs> All right. Well, let's hear these very important announcements then. Into a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts, they came. The Grognard Files, a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. TSR alumni and all-around happy guy, Tim Kask. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Tim. Oh, you're more than welcome. It's my pleasure. And we're going to talk gaming magazines, since I honestly think there's probably nobody else in the hobby that knows more about gaming magazines than you do. Well, thank you. Certainly uh, in variety. Well, I've certainly been involved with a number of them, that's for sure. <laughs> Just to preface, 
before Strategic Review went public, you know, became something other than a club newsletter, before Dragon and before all that, there was a magazine called Wargamer's Digest. Oh, Gene McCoy's magazine. I love right. that. And if you were into tanks, that was the magazine for you. But every once in a while, somebody like Gary Gygax or somebody else whose name you'll, you know, you go back and look at him and go, oh, yeah. But he, anyway, they'd occasionally get Gene to put something in that wasn't about tanks. And I saw it as, boy, am I going to do that better if I get the chance. <laughs> and it's not a knock on Gene. Gene's magazine served his audience, tankers. Yeah. It was a pretty wide open field back then. There, there wasn't anybody uh, that was doing a all about games or just any kind of games that wasn't a, one of the two house organs. Early issues of Wargamer's Digest, they'd occasionally cover Civil War or Napoleonics. But yeah, you're right. By about volume two or three, it was like World War II or modern. That's it. Well, that's because he had all those little Roco tanks, and he had a, he had a good he had a good lens on his camera, so he could that's fill true. it with. There was not a lot of copy in some of those issues. They mm-hmm. devoted a lot of over, well, in my opinion, oversized pictures to showing the battlefield when they should have been writing up what happened. But that was just my opinion, and that was part of the spur for me to do something better, okay. which I then approached with. Uh, my first publishing gig that wasn't a book was, of course, the purple issue. I believe it was number five of the Strategic Review. So um, that's how you could tell when I took over, it wasn't black and white anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was a mix of articles about our stuff because at that point, we didn't yet, the groundswell hadn't arisen yet of all the over the transom material that we later got. It was through the early, my early strategic reviews, and we started heavily encouraging people to, hey, you got an idea for an article? Well, write it up and send it to us. And we we started getting our readers to think about doing articles and that. We got a little bigger. We broadened our base because we had now had people that wanted to write stuff about games that weren't ours. Or sometimes people, other people wanted to write about a, one of our games. You know, it was our game, but it was other people writing about it, which I always felt was more legitimate. And okay. so well, it, it grew ahead. from there. All right. Well, we're going to do this chronologically since we have the return of DM Jim. Yay! <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> Glad to drop in and lower the standards. <laughs> Expand yes, the standards. somebody old. <laughs> but anyway, each one of us has taken one of your magazines to talk to you about. And Jim starts with your first issue of Strategic Review. So over to you, Jim. Boy, I wish I went back to Strategic Review and started there. I, I'm jealous sometimes. I was old enough. I was like, I don't know, 14, 15. Anyway, so Tim, I was instructed to ask you about your first issue, but I'm going to go backwards in time to volume one, number four, when it was still Gary as editor, and he announced you were coming in that issue. And then the next issue was the one with you and editor in charge. And that same issue where Gary announced you there's also a house ad for Dragon is Coming in that issue before you've taken over as editor. So my question is, how much of the idea to segue strategic review into the later incarnation of the Dragon magazine was there when you showed up at the door and were hired? And how much of it did you contribute to? And perhaps uh, it evolved under your aegis as editor-in-chief of strategic review. The desire was shared by myself and Gary before I was hired. It was one of the tenants of why they were hiring me. I was going to edit and proofread and make everybody's copy look pretty, but I was also to take over what was then a newsletter 
And we, this is one of the things that Gary and I spent probably overall several hours talking about prior to my actually showing up and getting a paycheck about what we wanted to do. We wanted to take the strategic review and make it into a quote, real magazine, 36 pages, color cover, eight pages, interior color, a quote, real magazine. We wanted the, the rush you get when you get that new magazine and open it up and smell the ink and it's full of articles you can't wait to read. And we both fantasized about that prior to my actually you know, beginning employment uh, in 1975. So it was a goal from the beginning. So I had a good deal of time to look at everybody else's stuff and see how they were doing what and what they weren't doing well. In my opinion, they weren't doing well. Uh, there were some other smaller publications. Um, La Bella Alliance was a, I think that came out of Detroit. It was a, it was a semi-pro gaming newsletter, some occasional articles, reports on recent games in the area, that kind of thing. There, there were a couple, three others. Um, Space Gamer? Well, Space Gamer started after we did, I think. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm First Dragon came out in July 76, and I don't think Space Gamer was out until later that year. I'm, ah. I would swear to it, and I'd certainly not. I'm, I'm not trying to stake a claim. Um, <laughs> you know, well, I've been reading back issues of Space and Gamer, and so yeah, I'm they started sure. up near the end of '75. So okay, well, but I don't know what their distribution was you know, right, down here in right. Texas. Well, yeah, because and they 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 started, and again, this isn't a knock. They started through their mailing list. We fanned interest in the Dragon using the Strategic Reviews mailing list, besides ads in the in the publication itself. And you know, we sent out teasers to uh, repeat customers, you know, things like that. People we thought might be interested in what we had to say. Ads so, right away in fiction pulps like Fantastic and uh, Amazing Stories. That well, happened as soon also, as you showed up. What's always overlooked by the fantasy market is we did two magazines for a year. Uh, we did two, two years, I think. We did two magazines. Gary and I did not want to say goodbye to historical gaming. So while we used Dragon to pump the, the hobby and the new side of gaming, we didn't want to abandon the old gaming. And so we published a sister publication called Little Wars. And it was very historically oriented and historical games. Some really interesting pieces by people who later became talking heads on the History Channel and on uh, the Military Channel and, and some of those cable stations. So the goal was always there that we had to wait so long to get it done was frustrating to me and to Gary, because if you sound and think about it, I came to work in September of 75, and we didn't come out until July of 76 with the magazine. We didn't really want to do a number seven strategic review. We had hoped to lapse a while, but the magazine getting going was slower than we wanted. So we ended up having to put out a seven to bridge the gap so we didn't get well, this is pre-internet, so we weren't worried about trolls, but we still didn't want to upset our, our customer base, especially our loyal supporter fans, meaning repeat buyers. You can kind of see that because the last issue of Strategic Review reads and looks very much like a dress rehearsal for Dragon Magazine. A lot of the same typography, a color cover. Well, <laughs> sort of. One or two of those articles were meant for the first dragon. <laughs> they ended up in the last strategic review, but that's another story. By this time, we, we'd been flogging, hey, right, right, you know, if you got an idea, right. And I'd been networking and talking to other people, and, you know, I know a guy, who, you know, I know a guy who like good with a typewriter, et cetera. We were starting to build up a slush pile, and you can see that in the last strategic review. We touched on a bunch of bases. 
getting away from just our stuff and just our type of stuff with band managers and boards and this other new thing. I think you can see that there. We were we were ready to go on a broader base with a bigger uh, muzzle or less of a muzzle pattern, bigger break on our shotgun. I don't know. I'm not a shooter, so I don't. <laughs> we were going for a wider audience. Well, this seems like an excellent place to segue to the first question about Dragon Magazine. The Dragon. Let me say it correctly. Yes. The Dragon. The Dragon. I guess my question then is, since I was covering The Dragon, why was there a need to create a new magazine? Why didn't you just go Strategic Review Plus, I suppose? I believe that in 74, late 73, when Gary and I first started talking about this, because it was kind of an understood thing many, many, many months before I actually came to work that I was going to work. The job and position, the need had opened, and I was going to fill it as soon as I got out of college. So that was there. Gary and I shared the belief that gaming was in a unique place in time and uh, with society and culture and what was being the books that were being read and all that, that we could see the gaming taking off. There were new, you know, new neophyte companies coming out with interesting uh, new products. And we kind of smelled out the, the bubble that was coming. We both, I mean, it, it, sometimes it was eerie. Gary would go, well, this is what I want to do. And as he's telling me ticking it off, it's ticking off every box on my list, too. We had a lot of common beliefs on what a good magazine would do. And a good magazine was not a house organ. And it published stuff about all good games because you get people going down to the whoever their local store is that has games. They go down and look for one. They might see another one they like. And we were trying to build the hobby faster than it was already starting to take off. The Rising Tide Lifts All Boats was absolutely our unpublished motto that should have been engraven over the door at the great building when we started the magazines. We were all good friends back then, all the guys that had involvement with the companies. We were all just having a ball. We weren't directly competing with Traveler fans. (laughs) We weren't directly competing with um, space... um, the, the, there was some marvelous space science fiction weird stuff about evolution coming games. And I can't remember some of the names. It's been so many years. Space uh, opera? Cosmic Encounter, I bet. Cosmic Encounter. Oh, yeah. All their, all their supplements that they kept coming out with. What a marvelous game. We did a bunch of articles on Cosmic Encounter. We liked the game. We did articles on games that we liked, and we didn't like the people that put them out. Yeah, that was Avalon Hill, right? No, I was friends with Avalon Hill. Well, no, I meant they put out Cosmic Encounter. No, no, that was... Um, Eon, Eon Games. Eon ah, Games. Okay. My sole rule of thumb was, did I find it engaging? And if I did, then I was likely to look for an article about it or say something myself or whatever, because I've always loved to tell people things, whether it's tell stories... I'm not a big joke teller because I, I don't remember them, you know, much past the week I heard it in. But I like telling people things. That's why I got into journalism in the beginning. It's why I was on the student newspaper in college. I don't enjoy people telling people about things. Hey, come check this out. And so here I had the rocky pinnacle to stand on and to claim to all the gamers and would-be gamers out there. Hey, these are neat. Check them out. Well, that actually segues into my next question. As editor of Dragon, how much editorial control did you have, or was there a lot of... Complete total. Complete total. total. Gary never, ever checked off on a set of blue lines before it went, you know, the layout back, what we called the layout back then. Never. Two occasions, I recall. To be honest with you, I couldn't tell you what the articles were, 
But there were two articles at different times when I liked the articles and they were a little controversial and they kind of went a little bit against Cannon, but I thought they'd provoke a good discussion. And I w- would go into Gary and say, hey, can't not can I run these? I'd tell him, I'm um, seriously consider running this article for the following reasons. And I'd hand it to him. He'd read through it. And he always said, OK, twice. What about the blooms? Oh, mm-hmm. oh the blooms didn't have anything to do with the magazine at that point in time. Ah, OK. Nothing whatsoever. I was my own independent division. I was a vice president in the, you know, the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I had, I was in charge of the periodicals division. The Blooms had no o- overt and direct control over me other than as you got way up the line, you know, yeah, they own more stock than I did. And Brian never said a word to me ever, except maybe he liked an article that I wrote or, or published or something. But Brian never stuck his nose in the magazine. And okay. when Kevin got there, he quickly found out that he'd lose his nose if he tried to stick it in the magazine. <laughs> All right, then. And I had Gary's backing to bite it off, too. So <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Dragon ran a lot of classes, and they were always listed as non-player character classes. For now, a reason. I don't know about other people, but my gaming group always ignored that and just used them as regular <laughs> classes. So well, I'm just curious, did you guys realize that would be done anyway and didn't worry about it, or...? What was the deal behind the NPC class bit? It was the same reason that we ran fiction, both good and bad. The same reason we ran a number of articles in the early ones. We want to provoke people to think about their campaigns and make them better. And yeah, we knew that there were going to be snowflake DMs who couldn't stand up to their players. Yam, 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 and them, or else <laughs> they had such an ego problem that they couldn't stand the thought of losing all that attention once a week. So they go along with whatever their players want to do. But we still felt that for the good DMs, and we always wrote, published for the good DMs. There was nothing we could do with the bad ones, except hope that we gave them enough stuff to read and enough to things to think about, they'd get better. There's nothing you can do. You can't just reach out there and clunk them upside the head with a croquet mallet until they get their act together. Though, is- God knows, there are a few I would have liked to over the years, but... Don't mince words, Tim. Tell us how you really feel. Well, NPCs were there to make a richer campaign. In my old campaign in Carbondale, we hired specialists and we gave them a cut of the action. Or they had, as DM, I set their fee. So much mm-hmm. flat fee and such a percentage of the take. So if before there were professional thieves and thieves were being played as a class, if you needed thieves skills, you went and hired one. If you were still second and third levels and you wanted to go take something on that you could use the help of a hedge wizard of a couple, one or two levels above you, like maybe able to throw a fireball, you would go hire him or you would try to hire him. It was up to the DM. And of course, I wanted them to succeed in that I wanted them to have fun. So why wouldn't I give them these specialists? And if I I didn't make them cheap by any means. But, hey, half of a huge treasure and being alive is better than (laughs) none of that huge treasure and being dead. Right. (laughs) Although it's a weird thing. It seems like the guys up in the Great Lakes area were more willing to hire hirelings and specialists. When I was growing up in the South and gaming, nobody ever wanted to get specialists or hirelings. They always wanted to do it themselves or roll up another character to play that was the same thing. Well, that's the viral infection effect that you see there, and I'm using this in the medical term of viral infection. (laughs) The Lake Geneva and the uh, Minneapolis campaigns, a couple of the guys that had games going in Chicago, my game down in Southern Illinois at, at Carbondale, we did this and we trained, didn't set out to, but in effect, we trained 
the first generation of DMs, we used a lot of those things. And our people that we played with tended to stay in that area for the most part, you know, in the Midwest, you know, whatever. Don't right, think right. about you. Don't move more than three zip codes away and all that crud. So I'm not surprised to see that. We knew that they were going to do stupid stuff. Um, the only thing I ever had to publish was The Monk. <laughs> and I, I wasn't publish it or lose your job, but it was publish it or listen to Brian yap at me for the next year. <laughs> and so finally I said, screw it. And I told Gary when I published it, I said, this is going to be the most abusive character that was ever done. Yep. And it came out. He said, well, I don't want to read it then. I said, fine. <laughs> I published it. It came out several days after the magazine came back from the printer. He goes, well, that might have been one we might have should have talked about. <laughs> you know, that's why to this day I won't have a monk in my campaign. They're ridiculous. I got these little bitty guys sneaking around in the dark, killing giants with a single karate chop in the back of the head. Hey, come on, not even Jackie Chan tries to do that crap. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, Literally. they're doing stuff they didn't even, they don't try to get you to swallow in Hidden Tiger, Crouching Dragon, or, Whatever. you know, that, that marvelous one. <laughs> Boot to the head. Okay, well, my last question for the dragon is, how do you pronounce the land shark's name, Boulay? Boulay. It is Boulay. Boulay. I've always, when Pete, when asked, I've always said that. Okay. Uh, the the Boulay was a, the name and the pronunciation was thumbing my nose at France. <laughs> <laughs> France, easy to do. France was real, very unpopular in the mid 70s because de Gaulle was being a dick. Every time NATO needed something, de Gaulle said no. Every time the UN wanted to do something and de Gaulle could stick his oar in, he'd say no. There was even a um, website for many years that uh, su- the name of the website was a suggestion for a, uh, an act to France. Uh, I'm not going to ruin your pg rating here um, <laughs> it was quite hilarious and i went to it just about daily for a year but anyway the the little monster thingy in the bag had only been used once or twice it didn't have a name it ran down a hallway full of people and knocked a bunch of them over and and that's all it was it was a nuisance thing they called it the bullet simply because of the shape mm-hmm. i said well i can see that all right i'll frenchify the name <laughs> I'll put an E-T-T-E on the end, and we'll call it the Boulet. <laughs> and then, of course, the rest is I was listening to Saturday Night Live repeat, and there was the Candy Graham Landshark. Landshark. It became the Landshark. Well, I knew I was going to do something with that flap on its back. I didn't know what. Ever since then, I've had a, an uncanny knack. I can see a picture of a monster or whatever, or a thing, and uh, give it powers. And I first learned I could do that with uh, PC games. We were doing a huge mod, and somebody sent me sprites, and two hours later, I sent back the complete descriptions of all the sprites and all the powers that they had and didn't have and whatever, and he goes, how'd you do that? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I looked at them, and I knew who they were, and Jim can tell you, I still can do that. I can look at a picture of something and know what it is and put it into a game, and That's I don't a know. That's superpower. I would like to just mark the occasion. Uh, there's an old school gamer that uh, I know, and I think Tim does too, named Ian McGarty, who thinks his group is called the Silver Bullets. Sorry, dudes, you're the Silver Boulets. Yeah, that's, right. that's right. But those the are great Silver Boulet they've, band. They've they've sent me, they've given me T-shirts, and they asked me several years ago when the, I ran into them. I ran into them on the streets in Gen Con one year. Hey, a nice shirt because they had a boulet on the front. And they saw my name tag and said, holy shit, you invented it. And so we <laughs> met each other and they gave me a shirt and they've given me shirts since. And 
Uh, they had a bunch of buttons made up this year, and so they gave me a whole wad of buttons that had the silver boulets on it. So, yeah, they're nice guys. All nice. right. Well, I've been wondering about that. My grandson wants to get a boulet tattoo. <laughs> Him, his grandma's not too happy about that idea, and I've not encouraged it. He just likes it. He yeah. doesn't play games. He just thinks it's a neat monster and that I invented it, so it'd be cool to have it uh, forever on his arm in ink. So someday it looks like a dead rhinoceros. <laughs> it's it's not a tattoo. It's an heirloom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's yeah, right. but if you get that tattoo, people are going to expect you to be a gamer, and yeah. he might find himself True. pulled in. <laughs> True. Like it or not. All right. Well, we're off task. You told me not to go off task. <laughs> I promised. Well, then I guess we shall move to Liz and Adventure Gaming Magazine. Oh, and I had to pull one of those out to remember what was it. <laughs> Well, I got right now on my screen, I've got the PDF of Dragon One with the table of contents in case you tried to trick me on something. I had it right there. Aha. Where was the table of contents? Because we were looking for it on our e-copy and couldn't find it. Oh, it's on the CD-ROM set. Yeah, that's what we were using. Well, I think what Mike means is, did the magazine itself have a printed table of contents? I don't remember. Yeah, apart from the They broke down. It's part of the thing. It's the bookmarks. Yeah. Right. And in bookmarks, I I don't remember if it did or not. I was just curious, because I was reading it, and I couldn't find it, so I asked Liz to look. Well, in in one respect, it's a good thing I didn't, because Creature Features wasn't even supposed to start that month. (laughs) Boulay was supposed to go in in August for Gen Con. But there was a physical catastrophe with a half-page ad that got damaged in the mail. And this is like when we had to send stuff like that in snail mail. So I had to come up with a half-page that weekend. And so I started it early. I took that home and created the boulet. And Dave uh, Dave Sutherland uh, heroically turned me out a piece of art. Told him, okay, I got about this many inches. And he turned out a piece of art. And we got the hole plugged. And yeah, we started for our newer, newer listeners, just point out that he literally had to cut and paste <laughs> yes <laughs> with yes. actual scissors and actual glue oh, right there's razors and exacto knives and yeah. tiny little paper cuts and knife cuts and hot wax and oh yeah your fingers were a mess after you got done uh, you got done cutting and trimming all those <laughs> we had to do it perfect if it was crooked it was our fault because offset printing was take a big picture of it and then make it into a plate and print it Paste up really meant paste up, hot wax, burned. I want to hear Liz ask Tim the question about Adventure Gaming Magazine, about how a 20-year-old came into the office and kept saying, publish my cartoons, publish my cartoons, like <laughs> Brian Bloom and his monk. <laughs> well, no, don't, don't ask about that. Nobody cares. Him, <laughs> there was something endearing about his earnestness. And so I think on the second or third time, I said, oh, fine, punk, give me your stuff. <laughs> I'll see what I do with it. Persistence pays. Well, it was years later. He says, "Hey, I was that guy that came in, and that was a, that was my cartoon." I go, "Oh, you're all grown up now." <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess my first question about adventure gaming. I was looking through it. I noticed you had your own publishing company for this, Manzac Publishing. Yeah, that was named. Was as... yeah. I was going to ask: Is there any backstory to the name Manzac? Oh yeah, my children's names are Amanda, and we call her Mandy. Uh-huh. And my son's name is Isaac. We call him Zach. So I created the company name out of my two children's names, Mandy and Zach, Manzac. Oh, that is so cool. And I had to put the other extra K on the end for cask. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's where the name came from. And that's why I, I 
was heartbroken when I had to fold the company and put it into bankruptcy. Mm. It's named after my kids. But that was uh, Reaganomics. <laughs> was the creation of Adventure Gaming already an idea in your head when you left Dragon? No, to be honest. When I left TSR, I applied in both Milwaukee and Chicago and for various editorial and writing jobs and whatever. And they looked at me and they... I think some of them was all I could do to keep from holding their nose because what I had been doing the past five years was beneath notice in the regular world. I interviewed at boatloads of publishing, different kinds of publishing companies. There were people in Cincinnati at the time who, well, it's no secret that Glenn Kidd and Gary Gygax had a notorious feud for, for many years. When Glenn had found out um, a few months after the fact, what had gone on, he says, hey, you want to do another magazine and we'll uh, compete with your old boss? I said, sure. Glenn put up, Glenn being Ralph Partha Miniatures, Ralph Partha put up some money to move me here and to get the magazine rolling. And then its objective was always self-sufficiency and we were beginning to achieve it. We were making money on paper, but of course, during that period of time, so many small businesses we're going out of business, and um, the small mom-and-pop hobby shop was particularly hard hit. And it's not me saying that. That's a couple of studies I've seen. Yeah. They were particularly well, hard hit. And so I'd go out and find 250 new circulation and lose 300. So I was just, you know, running in place, running in place. And after a um, personal loss of several thousands of dollars, I just had to stop. I had to quit. And so uh, I got out of gaming, got on with my life and raised my children, became a soccer uh, soccer coach and an announcer and a ref and sold flooring and uh, became a school teacher and taught school and retired. Well, I really liked going through the first issue of Adventure. Almost I got like, that I did too today. Yeah, it was like um, going back to your roots. You know, you had you were covering not just fantasy role playing games, but you were covering war gaming, you were covering traveler, you were covering at conventions, and it was just a great mix of different types of articles over all the different facets of gaming. And it, it was just really, really cool to go through that and you know see so all of the got variety. My I, I kind of figured out how to do it by then. It was always Gary's and my goal to not exclude any other company. If they had a good game, we didn't care. Like I said, we I pumped up games that were either published by or in one case designed by someone. I really didn't care for it, but it was a hell of a game. And so I felt this obligation to my readership to tell them about this really good game. I didn't have to say, you know, the guy that did it is a jerk. No, I just said, <laughs> hey, this is a really good game. I think I, I got pretty good at that. And I think at Adventure Gaming uh, shows because when I left TSR, I had a boatload of authors and a couple of cartoonists and that said, we want to go with you. Yeah, J.D. You know, Webster followed you, you know, and, from Phineas Fingers. And, and Trampier followed me mm -hmm. while he was still working at TSR. They didn't like that. <laughs> but yeah. while Tramp, Tramp from the very beginning would not hew to the line that uh, at a certain point in our development, the artists were told, don't be doing stuff for Tim on company time. And, and that's, that's fine. I wasn't paying them. That's all right. Well, Tramp said, no. <laughs> Brian looked at him, because I heard this later from a third party. Brian looked at him and said, well, you mean no? If I want to do something for Tim, I'll do it. Whether I do it during the day or during the night, doesn't matter. You give me a deadline, and I get my art in on time is all that counts. And so he continued to do stuff for me. 
uh, right up till the time I left, and then he left them and came to me. Yeah, I kind of regret at the time I never heard of this magazine. I didn't find out about it till maybe like 10 years ago, and when I started collecting it, it was like, wow, this I would have really enjoyed this, but my local game stores didn't carry it. I had not even True. seen an advertisement for it. True story, and Jolly just backed this up again in, in response to uh, my YouTube two YouTubes ago, number five, he so admired adventure gaming that they drove an hour each way, each month to get the magazine to get adventure gaming. <laughs> he has since told me, and he, he said that there were times driving back when it wasn't there. <laughs> He's upset. It wasn't there. And he said, and he patterns his shaders after my adventure gaming. And I found that homage to be very touching. Huh. Imitation. He said, and he said also in public, then I tried publishing the magazine, and I found out why you were sometimes late. <laughs> you know, Jolly and I kind of mutually geek out when we're together. I'm so impressed by what he does, and he's so impressed by what I did. So um, we have an interesting relationship, a mutual geek out, <laughs> geek squared. <laughs> That's what we call that at conventions, when two, two people that normally get geeked over, geek on <laughs> each other, then it's geek squared. So what would Jim and Zach be? Jim and Zach? <laughs> Zach Glazer. Zach Lazar. Oh, oh I'm the, trouble with, Jim. the trouble with two heads is what we are. <laughs> and Edden. No, they'd be more like that that figure that uh, Dennis Mize sculpted for Ral Partha. Oh, I'm trying to figure out who she is. the Three Stooges? <laughs> well, I'm thinking who'd be the third head, yes. That's one of my absolute favorite funny, I don't know what they call that, figures, but I'd put it in my game, but it is definitely the Three Stooges. Well, that's what I get, because Zach and I have a plan 20 years from now to be the new Frank and Tim, and I call new Tim. Oh, <laughs> oh well, you better hope I'm not still around. <laughs> then you can be little Tim. <laughs> If I'm still going to the cons or if I still have a video camera, you know, they can wheel me in here in my hospital bed. <laughs> uh, we'll still be going. They'll just, Zach will have to be driving us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. That works for me. End of side A. To continue interview, turn to side B. <laughs> or equivalent. <laughs> that was part one. We'll be showing or playing part two of that interview in episode eight and a half, which should be coming out shortly after eight. Because as soon as <laughs> as soon as you guys figured out how to turn the record over, <laughs> yeah, I just I don't get it. <laughs> What's a record? <laughs> What's a record? Yeah, this is the first CD, fifth CD I've put on this little, little player, and the needle keeps ripping them up. I don't know what. And every time I turn my CD over, nothing plays. Yeah, spitting it out, doesn't it? Yeah, stay with my eight tracks. Bah! And on that note, we will let you guys go, and uh, see you episode eight. Bye bye. Bye. Reorg. We're out for that.
Ich wollte sagen, dass ich die Leben habe Ich sing auf dem 